Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Gran Turismo hits theaters, Rosario Dawson returns as Ahsoka, and filmmaker Peter Berg joins us to discuss his new series, Painkiller. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 276 of Real Blend, a podcast that tried really, really hard to like Ahsoka. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor here at Cinema Blend, uh, and I am joined... As a, well, let me get to well, hold on before I get to the introductions. You think I would know how to do this after a while? Uh, we Gran Turismo is hitting theaters and we have our review. Rosario Dawson returns to the Star Wars universe as Ahsoka in live action. And we will give you our early impressions, although you might have just heard them. Uh, and filmmaker Peter Berg, who we really, really like, is going to join our show to discuss his new Netflix series, Painkiller. And now the boys uh, joined every single week on the Real Blend podcast by Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hello, Kev. How are you, sir? Sean, Jacob and uh, Jeffrey, who's producing our show today because Gabe is uh, currently in Toronto as we're oh. as we're recording this. Hello, Jeff. And now as he's drinking his just whatever he has in there, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. My man, how we doing? I'm good. How are your Astros doing this season? Keep going. Are they not good? I thought they were still good. Yeah, well, you know, they're they're having fun, and isn't that what matters? No, the problem is that honestly, it's just such a strong division. Yeah. Well, that's your sports talk for today. Uh, the, the reason why I brought that up is because Jake was drinking out of a Houston Astros mug, which you would know if you were watching the show on YouTube. If you would like and to join the visual you? aspect. Right. Exactly. Um, if you would like to join the visual aspect of the show, head over to YouTube.com backslash Real Blend Podcast. If you don't want to join the visual aspect of the show, we're available all the different places you get your audio needs met. And if you'd like to sign up for Real Blend Premium, you can get an ad free version of the show and a newsletter uh, of which I'm going to be writing one this week. So you guys will get one on Friday. Jeez, Jake, I don't know. The Astros, maybe I I have to think about it as you get a little bit closer. Yeah, you should. I'm going to write all about how they're struggling in their division. Um... (laughs) How are you boys doing? You guys doing okay? Good, baby. Good. Yeah. Love yeah. the weather, but 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 here for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's also it's it's been a strange time, right? Because when you when you when you're going a million miles a minute, like we were mm-hmm. in June and early July, and obviously with the strike and you know the way it's affected everybody uh, in in all different forms of jobs and everything, but it, it we you know you're in a period of time now where we're not you know Jake and I. And Sean, we're not doing the amount of interviews that we normally do. So it's been kind of a strange adjustment. I mean, a lot of filmmakers are doing interviews and and that's why we have Peter Berg on for which is interesting because Peter Berg is also an actor, as you all know, using Copland and Lions for Lambs and Collateral. uh, Collateral, collateral michael yeah. mann um and so we had him on but you're, you're going to hear the interview shortly because he directed the episodes of all the episodes of painkiller but even in this interview we can't talk about work that he did as an actor like we i i wanted to talk to him about like being directed by james mangold or being directed by you know these incredible filmmakers that he's had the what chance was the to west work craven? with what west craven didn't think that he did oh he was in a west craven movie I, i'm, I'm yeah. blanking on the name of it but i, I the the ultimate question was going to we want, I mean, because it's our show, I would, I would have, we would have walked him through his classic film that he had done with the directors and talked to him about how they influenced his career. But you can't even talk to him about those because they're acting credits. Uh, you know, I'm sort of curious, and, and Sean, this, this sort of will kind of go into a really cool experience that you had. 
it's it's almost like going to the gym and and working out a muscle that that you haven't really worked out before using a new machine that you haven't worked out because we're still getting opportunities um, in a lot of cases. But, you know, sometimes you're just not allowed to talk about certain things. You know, I did a thing with Andy Serkis a few weeks back and Sean, you did a really cool thing recently with Michael Bean. Mm-hmm. But you're in a position where you maybe you can't ask that sort of stuff. And, and Kevin, obviously, you guys having it with, with Peter Berg, it almost like requires you to almost think differently, like access a different part of your brain and approach interviews from a different perspective. And and I have found uh, an interesting challenge. Like, look, I'm not saying one that I want to, you know, do for the rest of my life, but for the time being, it's, it's been almost a really interesting, fun time to try to do different things. Like Sean, how did the thing with Michael Bean go? Well, it went well because I I think that they, especially these people who do the circuit, and I don't think Andy circuit does the, the comic con circuit that often these regional comic book conventions mm-hmm. that like Michael Bean, I think, goes to and and makes a, a pretty good living doing autographs and and photographs um, and primarily talks aliens, Terminator and uh, Tombstone. Right. Mm-hmm. Like those are his his three things that he's sure. ready to talk about kind of thing. So instead, you're asking him questions that are related to the business and, you know, how different auditions were when he got started versus how they are now and um, getting his thoughts on streaming and how it's and then what what you'll hear about Peter Berg in our interview, um, the effects of artificial intelligence and how it's Mm. affecting how he's approaching the, the industry. But with Michael Bean, and I know when you did Andy Serkis, he was staying away from all those topics. Bean just like reflexively wanted to keep going back to his old titles. Um, and I was I kept kind of like steering him away into more interesting things. So uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think they're all trying to figure out how to move forward with this as well, too, because Sean Astin was at this convention in Columbia, South Carolina, where I was at, too. And he's a pretty big deal in terms of uh, SAG and, and the negotiation sure, boards. Sure. So I know he did a panel. I didn't get to go into it, but Michelle went into it and she said all he talked about was like his Uber ride from the airport and what he had for breakfast that day. See, it's and, funny. I was given um, I, I did the, the Andy Circus thing for Fan Expo yeah. and was given a list of pre-approved questions that was honestly st- it was like, what are you going to eat while you're in Chicago? And I was like, oh, I'm not asking these like I'll <laughs> yeah. like I'll ask stuff that abides by SAG after rules. But you're not going to give me a list of like, you know, what would you have for breakfast and, and expect me to captivate captivate 500 people with that? Right. Like that's you got yeah, wow. you got to be able to do something other than that. And Andy Circus is so hard because of the franchises that he's been involved sure. in. Like there's sure. so oh, yeah. many things you could talk to him about. We've had him yeah. on the show. You can go back. Sure. And listen to yeah. Him. Friend of the show. Um, yeah. Uh, so he asked about it whenever I get, I, he met him backstage and gave him a big hug. And he I'm assuming he was talking about you guys. He said, how are the boys? So oh, the boys are good. That's terrific. Yeah. I love hearing that. That's um, awesome. All right. So we danced around. Well, it didn't dance around. We we discussed uh, in depth Peter Berg's work as a director, uh, as a filmmaker. Uh, on this Friday new, Lights uh, is, is one of the greatest sports movies of all time. It is. Yes. And uh, here he is with Taylor Kitsch, obviously, in Painkillers. Um, and the two of them have worked together on a couple of different things over the years. And um, he gets into, like I said, uh, the challenges that AI presents uh, and working with Netflix on Painkiller. And he opens up about trying Oxycontin and, and cocaine, which I thought was a pretty open answer from him. Uh, hmm. And no, a number of really other interesting topics that you will get to in our Real Blend interview with director Peter Berg on behalf of the Netflix series Painkiller. 
Peter, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, we're the Real Blind Podcast. We're a filmmaker-driven show, and we want to be able to talk about uh, Painkiller and all the work that you did on the series. And I want to start with this because I had an unusual reaction uh, to your episodes. It might sound a little bit strange, but I wanted to see if you shared this at all. Um, I wanted to try Oxy while I was watching it. And I don't know if that's a reaction that you were trying to get out of an audience, because even knowing the harm that it could inflict, there was this weird compulsion as I watched it of just like, what does it feel like? And I wanted to know if you felt that at all, if you agreed with that, or maybe you even have experience taking it. Right. So, so I've taken Oxycontin one time in my life recreationally. Okay. Uh, And it was, uh, it it felt like I was being dropped into a warm bath of honey. It was <laughs> it was an incredibly pleasant feeling. Right. And I've never done heroin, but I know people who have, and who and I've talked to them about it, and they've said it's very similar to doing heroin. Okay, um, maybe more powerful, depending on the milligram dosage. And wow. something that you know is uh, undeniable is that. Oxycontin works in many ways. If you're looking to escape pain, as as Richard Sackler says in our uh, show, if you want to run from pain, run towards pleasure, Oxycontin will get you there and will get you there very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are undeniably, you know, appealing uh, aspects to those feelings. However, uh, and something that we tried to show in equal parts, yes, the drug um has a, a certain lure to it um but the price you pay is brutal and heavy and that high wears off mm. um you know for for anyone that's ever done cocaine and and i have tried that drug also and as i said to my son when i was giving him my you know drug talk about <laughs> kind of going through the, through the list of kind of my opinion of all drugs and, and, you know, the pros and cons. And, you know, if you're talking about certain hallucinogens, like, you know, mushrooms or, uh, you know, supervised MDMA or 5-MeO-DMT, I think there's merit to that. Cocaine, mm-hmm. however, I said to my son, is the greatest drug in the world, in the world, bar none. You feel amazing. You're funny. You're alive. You're happy. You're sexy. You're all of these things for about 15 minutes. and then and then it drops and then you do whatever you can to get back up and again you feel great for about four minutes and then it drops and you try and get back and it starts going below and below and below and below until you wind up in a deep dark morass of hell and misery uh, and and self-destruction and to me that's you know part of the opioid game that's part of the opioid journey that yes for a moment you might feel good and i Mm. did and i realized very quickly after that one time i don't want to go near this because it feels too good and the price you pay when the check comes is what we saw uh the character that taylor kitsch plays glenn Mm -hmm. who started and everything was great and he had his life back for about a month and then the spiral begins yeah, just to follow up real quick on don't, that, Peter, is there? Do it. Yeah, don't do it exactly. Well, is that is that what you wanted to ultimately communicate to the audience? Is there some, uh, is there a way that you wanted to maybe communicate that feeling to the audience? Yes, I mean, I think um, 
you know, there's a scene in, I think, the fifth episode where the drug reps are all using Oxy recreationally and they're high out of their minds and it starts sort of spiraling into this twisted, euphoric, broken kaleidoscope of of experience. And we're, we're intercutting that with, um, you know, Taylor Kitsch's character trying to detox alone in a garage with a case of Gatorade. And mm. it's, um, I, I certainly do not recommend that people get into this drug. It, it is a very dangerous um, uh, game to play with yourself. Um, you know, and, you know, I think uh, ho- hopefully, you know, one of the takeaways of painkiller will be, you know, a thinking about whenever someone tell, prescribes a pill that we put into our system, maybe you think a little bit about that pill and maybe who's making money off of you ingesting that pill. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's something I hope people take away. And and I think also just kind of personal responsibility that we all share for, you know, our children, for our friends, for our parents. If you know someone who's, you know, gotten a knee operation and has been prescribed 30, 20 milligram pills of Oxycontin, you might want to check in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, kids today are getting into oxys and fentanyls and all kinds of opioids and they're very hard to detect and it's you know our responsibility i think is not because big big pharma is not going to be looking out for our kids we need to take extra measure to make sure that people are not getting tangled up in this very addictive and dark drug you know, Peter, I, w- I wanted to elaborate on something because um, you and I had spoken for the television press uh, uh, earlier this week. Um, actually, yeah, it was yeah earlier this yeah, week. You were wearing we were talking- a tie. You were wearing a tie both times. I was wearing a tie both times. And one of the <laughs> one of the things that we talked about that I wanted you to elaborate on because we have a longer form here is exactly the quote you just brought up, this idea of, you know, running away from pain, running towards pleasure. And one of the things that we talked about you as a storyteller and as a director is when you're directing material that deals with things like this, you're making entertainment, but at the same time, you're also making something that is meant to be important. It's supposed to give you messages in terms of like, you know, that's what, what I love about storytelling. And so I wondered if you could just elaborate on that as you work on a project. And what's really fascinating about this show is you directed all the episodes, a lot of shows, uh, different directors come in. Um, But how do you fine tune when you're pushing too much in that pain direction and then bringing the audience back to the pleasure of the story and then pushing, I mean, that push pull has got to be fascinating to me. Right. I mean, there, there definitely is, you know, a a tonal intention with the way I and my editors and my music, my composer and everybody involved in the show approached um, um, the painkiller. And, um, you know, as, as I, did more and more research on the Sackler family and the way in which Purdue was able to make so much money, tens of billions of dollars, right? Huge numbers. Um, it, the more I unpacked it and saw how greedy these people were, how transparent it was, if you just took even a, a, a slight look at, at their efforts at legitimacy, putting their names on museums, putting their names on medical schools to try and sort of say, hey, we're we're good. You know, we care. 
while they're selling heroin and a little pill to your to to you and the people in your life, the more I, I kind of learned about it, and we we had a, a wonderful source book uh, that we used, uh, Painkiller by Barry Meyer, and he was incredibly informative, and that book is remarkable, and it sort of lays it all out, and to me, it read as a very dark, twisted, bizarre absurdist story in many ways it's absurd what they were able to do it's evil and awful but there was a a a a, a wild absurdity to it and i wanted to try and capture some of that and create create a tone which i'm i'm happy with um that took you into this absurdism that was experiential in that way, yet never got too far away from the horror of people dying, children dying, of parents dying. And so that pleasure, pain, if, if that's you know kind of how you look at it, I don't know that I ever wanted there to be pleasure uh, when people to experience pleasure when they were watching the Sackler family. But, but I thought that it might be possible to create this sort of balance of, of two different tones. Um, and that was, you know, something that, that was inspired by the whole idea, which goes back to a Buddhist theory that man's suffering comes from his, his, his need to run away from pain as quickly as possible. So anything that makes us uncomfortable, we, you know, a, a rough conversation, a breakup, physical pain, an emotionally challenging situation. We as humans want to stay away from that. It's our instinct and run to whatever feels good. Right. Give me a drink. Give me a pill. You know, let me buy something online. You know, whatever it is, that's that's the nature of so much of the suffering that we all go through. So we're, we're so scared to live with any pain that, you know, give me a pill. I don't care. I'll take it. Right. Um, it's going to make this go away. And that, you know, both that that was, you know, in my mind, the genius of the Sacklers that they realized that they could insert themselves in that run from pain, run towards pleasure cycle with their little pill. They were going to make a lot of money, which they did. Yeah. And mm. that was part of kind of how I approached making the show tonally. Um, again, I wouldn't say pleasure. I sure. didn't want kids to experience pleasure. Um, you know, there, there's legitimate anger in in all of it you know i i'm i'm angry uh, we as a filmmaking team uh noah and mike the writers were angry eric newman our you know executive producer pulled this all together um we all know people i can count i can't count them on two hands now that have died from from opioids including some of my real heroes like uh chris cornell or tom petty or my number mm -hmm. one musical hero was prince he died of opioids there's there there's no desire to bring a lot of pleasure uh with this story but um the pleasure pain cycle is real as a quick follow-up to that uh, and one of the things i find fascinating are the stories that you have told in your career lone survivor deep water horizon like like stories that deal with tragedy that are that we go to the theater and watch you know as films and and i don't like i don't want to use the word entertainment but you're dealing with very serious subject matter and giving us these stories but at the same time that to me is so fascinating that you have to toe that line where i'm watching lone survivor 
and I'm blown away by the filmmaking of it and the and what you're doing with the performances. But at the same time, we're watching a really tragic story that uh, you know about heroism. And I just that that to me is just interesting how you find that tone. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a challenge. And and like Lone Survivor, Deepwater Horizon, Patriots Day, these were all real events. Uh, you know, Patriots Day, the Boston Marathon bombing, and you know, part of the process of making a film like that and writing those scripts is going into the communities, Boston, uh, Louisiana, and you know, in, in the case of Lone Survivor, into the Navy SEAL community, which is, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can imagine is a, a pretty intense community to come into and say, hey, I want to, I want to tell the story of something that really happened. People are concerned about tone um, and about, you know, are you going to cross a line telling a real mm-hmm. story in the service of entertainment? And what I've said many times to to family members of people who've died uh, when I want to you know get their blessing to try and tell the story is that I do believe there's a line, you know, a line that if you cross, you know it, you've crossed it and it diminishes the work and diminishes the lives of the people who, who you're trying to, to, to respect. And I said to people, you know, I, I don't, I can't tell you what that line is right now, but I, I, I do feel like instinctively I have and I surround myself with people who do have a sense of when you're crossing a line and to mm-hmm. pull back. Um, and it's something that I've tried to do in the telling of these real stories because mm-hmm. I have so much respect for the people that I'm making the films about. Um, in the case of the Sacklers, that line is much blurrier, I think. I don't have a tremendous amount of respect for that the way in which they made their money uh, and they've done to so many people and to the pain caused. So I was less concerned um, there. You know, uh, the Sacklers are very good with lawyers and the Sacklers have a long history of suing anyone that tries to tell stories about them. So we did have to check with lawyers um, to make sure that we were, you know, felt like we were safe from from that kind of a counterattack. But Wow. Other than that, I didn't. I wasn't concerned with that line. Hmm. Uh, Peter, to that end, there's a character that I think has the thread of very specific needle um, between the the evilness of the Sacklers <laughs> and maybe a character that Taylor plays um, that's that's victimized by it, and that's the Shannon character uh, played by Wes Duchovny, because we invest so heavily in her journey, and can she be redeemed? Like, how far is she going to fall? When she sees all these different instances where she sees the the harm that's being done by her work, essentially, um, yeah. and I wasn't familiar with Wes Duchovny at all as a performer, and I thought she was incredible. Can you talk a bit about some of the conversations you had with her to make sure that she was finding that line that you were looking for? Right. Well, I mean, I think the the interesting thing about Shannon—that's the character that Wes plays—and something that that we talked a lot about is, you know, the the idea that someone is put in a real moment of of moral decision right mm-hmm. like like you know how how often in our lives do are we really posed with an acute moral dilemma mm-hmm. that that you know confronts and challenges everything that we are you know mm-hmm. how we were raised what beliefs we had what kind of parents what kind of teachers what kind of friends and you know you you like to think that when you are forced with a real decision, like like her character is, you know, a young girl out of college, 
doesn't know what she wants to do, doesn't come from a lot of money, thrown into this world of drug repping, making hundreds of thousands of dollars by selling as many milligrams of Oxycontin as she can, buying in until that moment comes. And mm -hmm. that realization that, wait a minute, wow, okay, I like the money. Everybody likes money. I like the power and the freedom and the thrill of this lifestyle. Wait a minute, do I? Mm -hmm. Am I that person? And, you know, that I give creating a character who in, in a believable and authentic way comes to a, a juncture like that, where she has to make a decision about right and wrong. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you believe and it's kind of hard today because we're to, to find something is right or wrong because everything gets so many, but she defines that in that moment, she's able to dig down and make a moral decision which I, I believe in, in the decision that she makes. And mm. that was sort of the, the 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 key moment in that character's arc was that moment. Mm. So everything we talked about was, you know, building a character that you believe gets to that moment and, mm. and is able to make the right decision. You're terrific. You know, Peter, last year, I think, marked about 25 years since your filmmaking directorial debut with Very Bad Things. Um, and what's fascinating to me is, you know, I mean, your career is incredible. I mean, I know, I know we can't dive into certain aspects of it now because of the circumstances that we're in, but in terms of the filmmaking that you've done, it is truly extraordinary the the range of genre that you've that you've played in. I mean, one of my favorite movies of yours is The Rundown, as I mentioned. But when you look back at that first feature, um, I wonder, you know, what you still take from that experience, maybe mistakes or things that you learned as a filmmaker that you go, I'm still applying now in something like this because it's just i mean i know it's a long time ago i'm just curious what you remember about that when i made my my first film uh very bad things i wrote that script in a very short period of time uh based upon some experiences that i was having in my life uh, i was not in a great mental place I had a friend who committed suicide and i um was my marriage was coming to an end and i was sort of at a place where i was like what what is happening you know kind of like you think life is you think you do certain things you make certain ways and, and and you're gonna have a certain expected outcome and it just doesn't work out that way um and i wrote very bad things kind of in that mindset very quickly never thinking anything would happen i never made a movie sent it out to a couple of actors cameron diaz said yes christian slater who at that time was at the top of his career said yes and the next thing i know i was on the set making a movie Wow. And I was so uh, green and terrified because I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And uh, that manifests itself generally as defensiveness. So I would pretend that I knew what I was doing whenever, <laughs> I would, whenever anyone said anything to me. And literally, people would come up to me and, you know, I'd be on the set and I didn't really know what I was doing. And people would say, good morning. And I would say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> what, wow. does that mean? what are you saying to me and they're like i'm saying good morning and i like no 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 they're like i was so scared oh wow I, you know i think i was i was lucky and i think about it that i had a really compassionate crew who knew that i was scared and didn't let gave me the room to be that kind of insecure about the whole thing 
without mm. fighting me and and yet they guided me and they're like no Pete, we're we're actually just saying good morning and we hope you have a good day and <laughs> good luck like and and i think as you know i uh, continue through my career every, everyone has self-doubt and you know when you're trying to make a movie you're kind of pulling this giant lie over people like i'm going to make up a bunch of stuff get a bunch of people who are going to pretend to be other people put it together and present it to you and you're going to have an emotional you know connection to it and and i believe there's every director you know if if you ask chris nolan deep down inside when he's making oppenheimer when he's in the middle of that process if he knows for sure he doesn't no no one does and mm -hmm. so much of filmmaking i've learned it over the years is having confidence, having being collaborative, surrounding yourself with good people, doing your prep, and and having confidence. And you know, you never know. You never know how something's going to come out. But um, I've gotten much better at not telling someone to go fuck off when they say good morning to me. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. I think. <laughs> going the other way. Just as a right. quick practice, say, say good morning to me. Watch. Good morning, uh, good Peter. How are you? Morning. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Much, much better. Much better. <laughs> yeah, I'm better. Vast improvement. <laughs> You've grown a lot since very bad things. No, just a, a quick follow-up because as you entered the room to do the interview with us just now, Sean and I were having a debate about the Oppenheimer box office. And I, I, I genuinely was just curious from your perspective as a director, when you see a three-hour R-rated historical drama making possibly 900 to a billion dollars, you know, what does that tell you about where we are in the industry, especially with the Barbie success? I'm just curious to get your perspective on that whole, those those two films and what they've been doing at right. the box well, office. I mean, it's it's fantastic. I love it. It's great for all of us in this business. Um, <clears throat> there's been so much doubt and speculation about the streamers and the death of cinema and that COVID reinforced that and theaters are shuttering and, you know, all that stuff. And to see... Um, that theory decimated with two films, um, I think is fantastic. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, we were, we were talking at the beginning about, about Oppenheimer and it's like, well, yeah, if you take a real master filmmaker and marry him to, you know, arguably the most, certainly one of the most important and vital humans to ever walk the planet, uh, Oppenheimer, put them together, the, the potential is there. It, and to see it come to fruition is good Good for all, anyone in our business. Yeah. Uh, Peter, I want to ask you about this because I've always admired Ron Howard's ability to uh, switch back and forth between feature film and documentary. Uh, and he, I've spoken to him a couple of different times about what he learns from each of the different formats uh, that he applies from one to the other. And you've been doing this now recently with the Chris Cornell work. And I know you have the Rihanna one that's coming up. I believe that you're in post-production on that. Um, what are you finding in terms of like, how come you're going after some documentaries like that? Is it, is it the subject matter that appeals to you? Is it something that you wanted to try to flex a different muscle on? And how right. is it helping your feature film story? Right. So I, I mean, I've always loved documentaries. I've made lots of them um, in uh, unscripted television series, uh, I've done several of those. Um, you know, a couple of things. One, it you go filming real stuff is is always helpful 
for a director because it just it, it further deepens your experience with the human condition obviously on a real level and i think that um you know makes you better storyteller when you're moving into the scripted domain um mm. but the the other thing that i've found is you know i make um I made television shows, I made movies, I made documentaries, I shoot a lot of commercials, mm -hmm. a lot of Super Bowl commercials. And for Doritos. Me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, it's kind of like one big experience, you know. Mm -hmm. Filmmaking is one big experience. And going into edit rooms, whether you're putting together a scene from Painkiller or cutting a scene from Mariana Doc uh it's editing and it's it's storytelling and it's uh all all the same you know and making a 30 second dorito commercial is very challenging to to make a, you know something that people don't just get angry at which you know, <laughs> most commercials uh so for me the it, it's all just kind of one big creative experience um documentaries uh, uh film television commercials you know, anything, um, uh, even a good social media post every once in a while is a creative challenge. Uh, not, not, <laughs> I, I try to stay away from that, but um, I just love all of it. And um, I feel like it's one big ride for me. That's very cool. Peter, you said something to me the other day that has stuck with me since our interview, and I've been thinking a lot about it, about the dangers of AI. But then you you, you took it out of the Hollywood perspective and you put it into everybody else's perspective, the lawyers, the architects, the different people in life where not just directors and actors and filmmakers who might have AI take over their jobs, but the small town lawyer or the architect who, who wants to design a building that AI can then design – and I think a lot of the conversation that you and I are, and Sean are having right now is about the human experience. Everything we're talking about right now is about the human experience, the show itself, human emotion, things like that, things you can't get or, in my opinion, replicate through AI. Um, but as a storyteller, can you can you talk a little bit about that human aspect and why that is something that is so important and, and why that is, you know, it, that that is such a massive threat to this concept of like – if Painkiller was directed by AI, I have no doubt that I would not be able to feel it. I it wouldn't it wouldn't understand the pleasure right. pain aspect. But I'm just like it's such an important tool. Like I can't believe people. You said you're getting emails from companies asking you to come check out things about writing, and, yes. and I'm like that's insane to me. Yes. Well, I mean, look, I mean, yeah, yes, it is insane and it's scary and yet it's real and it is and the genie's out of the bottle, right? And um, I think, um, you know, my peers and I talk about, wow, we're lucky. We're lucky. You know, we're, we're going to get through this with human beings writing stories and human beings acting them and the expectation of audiences being that we want human soulful uh, experience. And, and yes, I think that's great. And that's all I know. Um, but the reality is there's going to be a whole generation coming up, uh, you know, maybe behind the 20-year-olds the today who might feel very differently and might depending on where AI, you know, technology is in 10, 15 years. And based on what I'm seeing, it's moving so fast. You know, yes, I just got 
two weeks ago, I told you an email from a company in Texas that did a whole demonstration and wrote an AI script in, uh, and, and showed us how to do it and have a really disturbing uh, and chilling demo video of their AI writing a script. And the script sucked. Um, didn't make sense <laughs> and had no emotion, but it, you know, check with those guys in two or three years. I, I don't know. Um, and you know, the fear and the concern is real. Um, I don't know that there's anything that we can do to, to stop it, you know? Uh, and like I said, when we were talking about architects and accountants and, you know, clothing designers and, you know, there's so many jobs that are, you know, if you start looking at who could potentially be in, in the, in the scope of AI under the, the rifle scope, um, whose jobs are in jeopardy, uh, almost everyone is there's, um, uh, Billy Ray does a great podcast, um, about the strike on deadline. And he, I don't know if you guys heard it. He interviewed an AI. And uh, did you hear no. it? No, no. He interviews an AI, and it's it's. I mean, it's, you should go watch it immediately after after we're done with this. Um, wow. The AI starts talking about how it could be a better CEO than David Zasloff of of Warren Brothers, right? right you know, right, right. Who's, you know, on the other side of this strike, and the AI explains if you know the the responsibilities of a C CFO, a CEO, could be easily performed. That the goal is to maximize profits for the shareholders, and let an AI make all the decisions and run wow. the company. Wow! <laughs> so everybody is no, nobody's necessarily safe or immune to this, um, as far as you know. I can see at this point. Um, and it is what it is. And I am thankful that I can still work with human beings and writers and, um, you know, c cinematographers. I've had a, 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 um, a group uh, reached out to me and showed me a demo of storyboarding, AI storyboarding, where you give them a script and within five minutes, the AI shot list of visual shots for every shot on in the movie right and wow. these were these were very basic shots you know wide shot close up close up but they were shots and it's not hard to imagine two years down the road if you say ai uh study three martin scorsese films um and the visuals and give me storyboards for those you know, based upon the influences of Marty Scorsese's films and a cinematographer, then an AI will give you, be able to read the script, give you the shots, uh, create the shots, submit those shots to a producer. The producer hires a film crew to execute those shots. Oh my God. Those shots are then put into an AI editing program, edited, you know, per shot list that's AI generated, scored by an AI simulated composer, and there's your movie. So, you know, my mind can go to these places and there are certainly people out there, generally, I find younger generations who are all about that. And mm -hmm. that is what it is. Peter, I wish we had more time, but we will definitely tell people to go check out Painkiller. Yeah. It's a terrific show. Congratulations on it. I appreciate it. it very much, guys. Have a great day. Good morning to both of you. Go Good fuck morning yourself, you. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bye -bye. Peter. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.
This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, we want to thank uh, Peter Berg and his representatives for getting him on the show because uh, Painkiller is, I think, still trending number one on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jake, you were saying people in your newsroom have been talking to you about it. Um, I, I think it's really good. And it may seem strange that I asked that question about taking Oxycontin. Um, but w- what what I meant from that was that while I'm watching this um, show, this limited series, for some reason, I just wanted to try it like it 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 talks so much about the effects of Oxy and how it makes you feel and and gets really into the heads of people who become addicted to it. It's so effective in, in that instance that I was just like part of me was just like, I just want to see what it feels like. And then he talks about it feeling like a warm bath of honey that you get lowered into mm. And that made me want to try it even more because that sounds incredible. Um, but yeah, him opening up about and obviously it's it's very, very clear in the series, the effects that it has on um, on, you know, individuals who take it negatively. And, yeah. Oh, horribly. Yes. Yes. Without a question. And um, and their families as a result of of this addiction that that can hook you. Um, and then it, it takes the other side of the um, 
not that it makes them look uh, good in any way, shape or form, but the the companies that are capitalizing on this need for uh, humans to run away from pain and to run towards pleasure. And they just become the enablers who live in this gray area of, hey, if we can continue to feed the people who are seeking to run away from pain, we're going to make a heck of a lot of money. And they obviously do. Um, So that 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 was one of the things that I was fascinated just because. Like we talked about the Sean mentions the pleasure and pain aspect. There's this line essentially like the, the idea of running from you know, running from pain, running towards pleasure. But um, Peter Berg is responsible for telling a lot of stories that deal with very serious and traumatic circumstances. I mean, like things that, have you know, with Lone Survivor, uh, Deepwater Horizon. Patriot, Patriot's Day, Day. Patriot Day is a, is a disturbing um, film. Right. And these are films that you're and and the question I was essentially what I was trying to ask him was you're basically making a film that is an entertaining piece of work that people are going out to pay to see to be entertained in the theater. But at the same time, you're making a piece that is supposed to deliver a very serious message. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things you have to do as a storyteller is be able to balance that i mean in terms of like i mean lone survivor is a great film but it's also very serious and hard to watch but it's Mm -hmm. also made for you to go to a theater and experience the story um and to me that's what's fascinating about painkiller and 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 a lot of these things that peter takes on is him you got you have to you have to really have a good balance as a storyteller to be able to know when to push and pull in those directions, considering you're dealing with people's lives, people who really lived, people who, you know, people who are affected by these exact stories and, and situations. And like you run the risk of people saying, well, are you exploiting certain things? Are you are, like, does it come across as exploitive if you're, you know, telling stories about that? But then at the same time, on the other flip side of that coin, as Peter talks about or as Peter kind of you know, I'm paraphrasing him. It, you're you're getting the story out there to a larger audience and bringing awareness to it. So it's kind of a weird thing as a filmmaker to be able to play with that balance. And I I, I know that I would have a hard time with that. I'd feel like I was like I'd feel guilty like going back and forth with playing with these things. But you know he obviously knows exactly what he's doing with the storytelling. Well, and there's a character who's played by David Duchovny and Taya Leone's daughter. Hmm. Uh, I'm looking up her name because it's blanking. Her her name is West Duchovny. Um, Mm -hmm. And she plays a character who um, comes from a a, a rural poor background and she gets offered an opportunity in oxy sales. And she's being told over and over again, like, you just have to make uh, sales to the different doctors. You have to convince the doctors to move this product as much as possible. And she's really because you have Taylor Kitsch, who's suffering through the addiction. You have Matthew Broderick on the side of the the corporations who are making the pills. She's the character who's really in the middle, who Mm. understands what she's doing is wrong, um, but is also making a lot of money off of doing it and able to buy a new sports car and able to uh, party with, you know, all these other sales representatives. And, you know, the sales reps will make... uh, They'll sort of um, justify it in a way of like, you know, these people would get addicted to heroin if it wasn't, you know, oxy like you're right. you're not helping these people. Um, they're going to find whatever they're going to be addicted to anyway. So she sort of rationalizes it in her brain. She does a tremendous job with a really complicated character um, because yeah. a lot of the things that she's feeling, you feel it throughout the course of the story as well, too. And you kind of ask yourself, well, what, what would I do 
because she's not seeing the effect on the people. Right. But, you know, every once in a while, she's she'll us. get a glance of. Yeah, she's I guess. So. Yeah, I guess she's the surrogate for the audience because um, you're but, basically kind of like going back and forth between the two. It's also important to note that this is a rare occurrence where Peter Bird directed all the episodes. Yeah, a lot I'm glad of, he did, too. Yeah, it's because, again, and I I find this fascinating is a lot of famous TV shows. And again, this is not abnormal, like Stranger Things, all these big shows. They have different directors who pop in and out. I think Sean Levy directs the same two episodes of every season of Stranger Things or something like that. Um, And so what's interesting about this, though, is Peter Berg. It's basically you're telling a six hour plus movie, essentially, is the way he looks at it. And it's like that to me is interesting, because if you watch shows that have different directors who step in, you can feel the voice change. If you look really closely and I think that recurring voice of Peter's storyline, especially dealing with subject matter like this, you wouldn't want other people to come in and, you know, play around with tone, especially if you have a different film. Because Peter Berg has a very Peter Berg storytelling style or whatever you want to call it is, you know, he, he has his own voice as a storyteller and a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's crazy about it is like this is what, 20 years or so since The Rundown, which is probably my favorite movie he made. Um, with The Rock and Sean William Scott. Um, so, so like, I, Christopher Walken. That's a really, really great movie, The Rundown. Um, but his career is really interesting because like, one of the things I thought was really cool, too, in the interview, talked about his, like, first film, Very Bad Things. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sean opened up the interview with a question that I, just to hear his answer on that was really fascinating. To, you know, for, it also gave, in my opinion, for Peter to talk about his life and his own experiences gave validation to the concept of someone who could tell that story. Um, not that you would need to do that drug to tell that story, but it does give you some type of helps. authority. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, if, if someone's playing an alcoholic and they've been an alcoholic in their lives, they probably will find a different window into that. Because like Bradley Cooper, for example, um, with stars born, you know, he's sober now, but I guarantee you Jackson Maine, and again, I know it's acting and people can create these characters and create these things about them. But when you go through something in your life, it is easier to tap into those things and find sympathy and, and moral aspects of those characters. So it's that's why we excused it when Christian Bale killed people in preparation for American Psycho. <laughs> right, right. It's right. part of the process. The you know, sacrifices right. we make for art. Who's He's method. He's exactly. method. Well, I, I actually do I, mean, I do. I do have a question. I know we're joking about Christian Bale, but in the end of American Psycho. This is a totally side note, sidebar. But I'm just I'm picturing right now Gabe just going. Just, <laughs> no, 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 this is a spiritual rap. <laughs> I, no, I'm do, you guys, go. do you think he killed those people or no? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I, st- I, go I back think and it was in his between mind. the two. And I think he uh, no, I think he really did. I, I the, think he did. And the and the purpose of the ending is sort of a, a testament on just America and America being willing to sort of like push stuff aside for corporate greed. Because it's, it's, granted, it's been it's been probably 10 years since I've seen it. But isn't the idea that they what they get back to is condo and the condo like should there should be blood and bodies everywhere. But like the realtor is there. Yeah. And it implies that, like, maybe she cleaned it up because the the, the property was so valuable that she wanted <laughs> to sell it. And I, I to me, kind of. and there's other that, examples that of people message. who overlook, you know, things that he's saying because they're so self self absorbed. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. And, I, and I feel like that's sort of the message of what the movie is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that question of like, well, who is the actual American? Granted, it's a guy with the it's a guy with the axe. But like, you know, different definitions of. <laughs> Oh, so, no, we're getting, we're getting yeah, this a little, is from a our, our producer producer message. So writer director Mary Heron confirmed he did, and it oh. was meant to be more of a concrete answer. 
Okay. So Ooh, that's right. int- that's from our our, our producer Jeff. I, we're, I, we're doing our own little like pop up video. That, Remember that? Remember pop up video back yeah. in the pop up video? Well, it was that, clear that, in the book that he did it. I mean, the oh, book didn't mince any. Oh, I've never read the book. Oh, the, the book. book is there's a death in the book that deals with rats that I think no, is oh, one God, of the most arguably one of the most disturbing things I've ever read in my life. And there, thankfully, it was not in the movie. It is. It might be the most disturbing death I've ever read next Dude. to Chuck. Uh, who's the guy who wrote Fight Club? Chuck. Pal- Chuck Palahniuk. Um, yeah, he wrote a, sh- a, a book of short stories and mm-hmm. he told the story. About Haunted? A, 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 yes. Yeah. Remember that? Remember that? Remember the story about the kid in the, or the, the dude in the pool? Yeah, that was the opening story. Oh. It's, it's basically a very <laughs> R-rated in, or NC-17 version of Canterbury Tales. Where people, yeah. where people, isn't it sort of like. Again, it's been years since I've read it. Isn't it like a bunch of hostages in a room and they all have to like tell the most disturbing tale that they can? And I'm every chapter is a different disturbing story. But the one that you're talking about, the one with the pool, um, is the opening. Uh, it, it, it involves jets. Jets in the pool. Yeah, like the I mean, that... <laughs> no, 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 different kind of jets. Yeah, <laughs> that that and the and the and the thing from American Psycho are probably the two things I wish I I could unread. Dude, I, I don't know like, when I read American Psycho. I was a teenager, I believe. So you're going back a hundred years, Ugh. and you still remember it. I still remember it. Clear. Okay, okay. you're making me want to read. All you have to do is all you have to do is say Jake. rats, and I just. I'm, I'm horrified. I'm horrified. Jake, it's, it's probably the most. Is, dis- it, is it similar? I've, re- I've read a lot of you know, like uh, about like uh, a bucket where they like heat up the bucket. No, no, no. We can. We're going to leave this at this. Okay, say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it. You've you you got, got me intrigued. You've got me intrigued. All right. Something slightly less painful uh, is Ahsoka. <laughs> the first two episodes of of the new Star Wars series. Um, Jake, why don't you kick us off? Because uh, you're our Star Wars guy and and you got through. What'd you watch? The first episode? Yeah, watch first episode. Look, I think it's incredibly well made. I think mm-hmm. it, it is really high quality Star Wars. Um, it is also Star Wars for people who watched Rebels. It is very much a gift for uh, those who are fans of the animated series. I found it to be um, not that I couldn't follow it. I just felt like I couldn't emotionally access it. Because I didn't watch Rebels. Mm-hmm. Um, they put lines in there that give you what you need if you're not familiar with the characters. Um, they sort of kind of give you the sort of the cliff notes of like, look, this is this person. This is a person A's relationship to person B. This mm-hmm. is both of their relationship to person C. And so in that sense, I was able to follow along. But I also felt like what I would imagine it would feel like for someone to jump into Empire Strikes Back without having seen A New Hope. Not mm-hmm. saying you can't follow it, but it just doesn't mean as much to hear I am your father when you haven't seen everything that led up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd had a um, a very emotionally detached feeling from it. I, I found the, the pace to be incredibly slow. I found the editing to be strange because it really felt like, I don't know if you guys noticed this, that a character would say a line and then there'd be like a beat dude before cutting to the other character from them to respond. And it then there would be nuts. a beat. And I just kept thinking like, what, what are you all waiting for? Talk to each other. <laughs> like, what, like I, no. I felt like they were trying to pad the run because Disney plus has been under so much fire for like their shorter run times. It felt they're like they were trying to, to pad the run time. So yeah, I, you know, I look, it's, it's, it, it just sort of feels like, um, it, it's on me. It almost it's my fault. I didn't watch Rebels. But then again, I also don't feel like you should have to do 
multiple seasons worth of homework in order to to be emotionally attached to a show. If you want to add stuff in there to, as the benefit of for people who who did watch Rebels, I think that's fantastic. But I don't think it should necessarily be a prerequisite. Um, but you know, to each his own. I'm sure there are a lot of Star Wars fans who are screaming right now that this is what they earned and this is what they deserved. You know, I, I consider myself to be a Star Wars fan, and I just sort of by the end of the first episode just went. Oh, I mean, okay. I guess that's so. That's you didn't have to watch Rogue One to appreciate Andor. Andor was still interesting in and of okay, itself. That's a great. That's a great point. Right? Um, it's just it's better story. But it's a different order, though. It's a different order. Though. You're, I is, mean, Andor is is leading up to Rogue One, and sure. and Ahsoka is coming off of the events of Rebels. But now we have seen Ahsoka in live action throughout Mandalorian, yeah. right? And she does not do like I'm so with you on these dramatic pauses. They took me completely. I, thought, I, I kept thinking, I was like, am I am I missing something? Like, is 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 there, is there supposed to be a reason that everyone's taking a deep breath after well, my, each? My point being that like I've seen Rosario Dawson play the character. That is not how she plays the character. She and she does not do these long dramatic pauses that, that makes her seem like she's playing it uber serious. So I believe it has to be like a direction of Dave Filoni, mm-hmm. who, again, knows these characters. And I don't understand why he's doing it, because it's really obvious and really took me out of the storytelling. Um, I, I had a really hard time getting into it. I I dozed off through both episodes. Like I tried to watch them at completely different times and I dozed off each each time. So I, I, I just I don't understand. Kev, how far did you get into it? So I, I saw the first episode again. I. So there's two aspects. There's one. I mean, I for my job, I was going to watch it, you know, regardless for the show and then for my for my morning show. But I personally had no desire in myself to watch it outside of my obligation for work, um, which I think just just very telling about the the fatigue that we're feeling in terms of Star Wars and, and Marvel and comic books and in, in general, just just like that. These genres have they Hollywood has just kind of run these things <laughs> into the ground in, in, in a way that like, that's why like Barbie and Oppenheimer were so spectacular because they were just fresh and new, even though they're, you know, IP and whatever, and based on a book. Sure. But like, it still was new. It was new material. Um, and I think my problem with this was in the first five minutes, I had to pause it and Wikipedia where I was in the timeline. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 and again, I, Try to stay up with as much as I can in terms of where we are and in terms of these timelines. But even I was on the air today and my anchor was confused that this takes place after Revenge of the Jedi or sorry, Return of the Jedi um, in between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. Right. So like mm-hmm. like it is fascinating to me that like I like I don't know. I could not tell you where this was in the scope of Star Wars mm-hmm. had I not looked it up in the you know. And again, I know it's a spinoff Mandalorian rebel following rebels or whatever. I just, I'm so lost in it that I just, it's not that I didn't want to do the work to care. I just didn't, I just found it to be really honed in on making sure that if you watch this, you probably should know everything leading up to it. And Mm -hmm. I don't feel that that's a, like Andor, I was able to watch, like you said, without, without that, because it leads right into rogue one. But in this case, I just, I, it, I, it felt, don't, don't you think I'm sorry to interrupt. Don't you think it felt less like Ahsoka season one and more like yeah. whatever the, the last season of Rebels is? Plus it's like one. Rebels like it, season five. Yeah. 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 It's essentially Rebels season five. Picking up and Rosario is great. I mean, I love her in the role, but I mean, but 
everything she did in Mandalorian, in my opinion, is better than anything I've seen so far in Ahsoka. Um, like her episodes and her, the one particular episode in Mandalorian in, in the yes. forest is one of my yeah. favorite uh, Star Wars episodes or favorite Star Wars moments. That episode was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you have that bar set for that character and what what that character can do within a world that maybe is written better and or store uh, the story is being told better or it's a little more clear as to what's going on. Um, it works. So this is clearly a, a, a it just didn't work for me. I, and again, I, I appreciated the production value. It looked great. Um, I think the the score is really good. I mean, I, I just I just didn't find it memorable. Um, and I, you know, I will continue watching it just from a review perspective, but I, I have no desire to put plus press play on episode two outside of my obligation from a work perspective. And I don't that sounds makes me feel sad to say that because yeah. it's a Star Wars show. It's available in our homes right now and it seems so accessible and it should be you want it to be great. And and none of us ever go into these things going, man, I this is going to you know, I hope this is awful. We want it to be good. You know, mm-hmm. dude, it, it, uh, what, what was it? 18, 24 months ago, I was waking up at 345 in the morning to watch the newest episode of Mandalorian before I went yeah. into work because mm-hmm. I was so excited and out of fear of having it ruined for me. And now there are episodes like I got there was a point I eventually I ended up catching up and blowing through it. But there was a, like a point where I was like six episodes behind on Boba Fett and didn't care. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's, yeah. you know, that's um, this is going to sound it's topical because of, of of the trailer release that we saw this week. Rebel Moon looks like a better Star Wars movie than yes. Ahsoka is. Yeah, Zack, yeah. Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, the film so. that Sean O'Connell got to go to the set for and released a pretty badass set visit uh, exclusive. Wow, plenty uh, more to come. Actually, yeah. plenty of, that was just the that, tip of the that iceberg. Picture in terms of, of you on the set is is very cool, and that's Sex that's crazy. Awesome. I've never done one of those. It's where they like. They take the picture of you and then they hold it for eighteen months or whatever the case may be. Uh, I didn't get it till this morning. I got it this yeah. morning when when my that's content kind of cool. That's got to be kind of cool. And you you have you, you got a similar one uh, in front of the Batmobile, right? I did. Yeah, that's and it's awesome. shot by Clay Enos, who's his uh, professional photographer, who's on set for all of his films and shoots. Like, just yeah, shoots well, I have a picture of Stan and, Lee, so suck it. How oh, you do? And I hate that picture so much. <laughs> I never got to meet Stan. Um, <laughs> Rebel Moon, just a detour briefly. Um, Zach is not necessarily hiding the fact that it's his Star Wars. Like, sure. But he's making an R-rated Star Wars like Ed's screen, who plays the one of the main villains in this, has called it um, Star Wars with sex and violence and um, an R-rated language, essentially. And I was like, oh, great. Sign me up. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. But the world building that Zack Snyder's doing in this, like you're going to go to visit 14 different planets like over the course of this part one story and then it's a two-part uh deal and they created this entire new planet called Velth and it's a farming community it's it's supposed to be their Tatooine I guess but it even looks more interesting than that he's throwing shade at Tatooine on the set visit too he's like why does every Star Wars story feel the need to return to Tatooine every single time we he's like that's why I wanted to go out and, and go into these completely different like one is like a Japanese samurai influenced world one is a Blade Runner-esque type you know tech infused world um, he's he's trying all different things and um, I'm really really excited to see that movie better I, I get saw, a theatrical release it better oh god it has to it has I to. saw a tweet yeah. from someone that said man you know when someone's hand brushes over wheat that shit's gonna go down <laughs> yeah it's very true and <laughs> Sophia Botella plays um, the main character and she looks like she's a total badass in this so um, 
Yeah. So we ended our Ahsoka conversation by talking about Rebel Moon. That sounds about right. Uh, that Rebel uh, Moon trailer is fantastic, by the way. It's it looks, there's awesome. a lot going on in it. Yeah, there's I'm a in. lot going on in it. Um, it's a, it's a long to, trailer, though. It's a long, yeah, trailer. It's a long, long trailer. It's like three yeah. and a half minutes. Yeah, he yeah. shows off a ton. Yeah. Um, but yet I also get the sense that he didn't give everything away. Right. Did you I mean, I didn't sometimes I watch the, an entire trailer and I'm like, oh, I just saw the entire movie. Like, why do I have to including like third? I, think act I was stuff. just so enamored with kind of the beauty and the visuals and the aesthetic of the entire thing that. Yeah, you know, and, and it, like it's it's really just a lot of really beautiful shots strung together with an Anthony Hopkins voiceover. Mm, yes, which, Hopkins you know, voices. Not, I don't say just, not just. Just is such a terrible word, but but in the sense, that, to your point, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really give the whole thing away. Who does Hopkins, Hopkins play? He voices a robot named Jimmy. Nice. Um, and they are combat robots. And he was Zach was kind of describing what the Jimmy's do. And I was like, wait a second, are these comic relief? And Snyder was like, no, 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 <laughs> they are not. They are not. And then he looks at Debbie Snyder and he goes, do we have comic relief? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and she kind of laughed and he goes, I think there's some funny stuff in it. There's stuff that I think is really funny in it. But quite often, Zach's. How are you um, pacing out your coverage on Cinema Blend? Uh, probably like one a day until I run out of interest. Like tomorrow, I'm going to have a whole backstory. One a day about... till release day? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. One a day until I run out of interesting things to write about. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to get into details about those lightsaber swords that yeah. he created. Yeah. They're, they're kind of lava infused um, with these, like the core of the, of the hilt has these lava rocks that it, that create like a, a flame sort of thing. So, uh, like I said, he's taking the concept of Star Wars and just so he pitched this to Kathleen Kennedy years ago, apparently before the sale um, of Fox to Disney. And it was kind of like right around the time of the sale. And then once Disney sort of stepped in, they had their blueprint for what they wanted to do with Star Wars. And this already did they, though? You know, to, <laughs> well, for one movie, at the very least, Um so I love Force like, Awakens. No, it's great. I think Force, I love Force Awakens. Force Awakens is incredible. Force Awakens Amazing. is a movie that I could turn on right now and watch it. Oh, so good. I love Rogue One. I, I also love Last Jedi. The ending of Rogue One is incredible. That's probably one of the best Vader, Vader scenes of all time. Uh, yes, it is. And Gareth Edwards is the guy who passes the, the plans along and... He has a movie coming out called The Creator, which we'll be talking about. Please come on the very, show very soon. Please come on the show. <laughs> we need guests. Uh, all right, listen, I want to plug the fact that this Sunday, because we've talked about Netflix with Zack Snyder and we talked about Disney Plus, but we're a film driven go to the movie theaters type podcast. And this Sunday is National Cinema Day, something that um, was started last year and now it's moving into a weekend. It was during the week, I believe, last year uh, where you can get tickets for four dollars. And when we talked about it last year, one of the issues that was sort of plaguing National Cinema Day is that there weren't a ton of titles available. Mm -hmm. um, but now this year you can go to the movies and see uh, anything like even in, in these larger uh, premium format titles you can go see oppenheimer if you want to if you can get a ticket for it uh for four dollars you can go see barbie for four dollars there's a new movie gran turismo which we're going to review in a second that's coming that you can actually get on sunday tickets for four dollars um and it's a chance for this group nato uh, the national association of theater owners to celebrate people who are returning back to the movie theaters i think at the time they wanted to get this kind of off the ground to encourage people to come back and then they had such a influx of people with barbie and oppenheimer uh, and saw 
such great results from people who are saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep coming back because they saw a lot of the trailers that were playing before those movies and got intrigued by things like Dune or the Marvels or something like that. Um, and and but they already had this program in place. And so we just wanted to put it on everybody's radar about the fact that this Sunday uh, and it's advised that you potentially pick your tickets out in advance, because especially if you want to see something like Oppenheimer, Kevin can tell you that these theaters are still full, you know, as people are going out of their way to continue to see this movie. Um, so if you waited this long to catch the the new Christopher Nolan or you want to go see Gran Turismo, which again, we're going to talk about, go to nationalcinemaday.org and you can look for showtimes in your areas. Um, you guys have been going out of your way to Kev, you've been specifically going to the theaters more often. Are you seeing an uptick in terms of like audience sizes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've seen Oppenheimer seven times now, and I think the I'm going for an eighth time this weekend. Uh, the, I went to a 10 a.m. on or 1030 a.m. on Sunday and it was packed. I would packed. lose my shit if like one day Kevin was like, you know, I went and saw for the eighth time and on the eighth time realized not that great. <laughs> no, it gets better. Every, it gets actually gets better every time. It gets better every single time. It's a different I, movie every time. I Can I say something about National Cinema Day? See that? Yeah. So yeah, please, Jakey. Uh, one of the cool things about it uh, isn't just that you get to watch movies for four bucks if, if you want to, which is great if you have a family. They're also bringing back a lot of movies uh, to the big screen that haven't been yes. on the big screen in a while. And one right. of them is Jurassic Park. They're bringing Jurassic mm -hmm. Park back to the big screen uh, for the 30th anniversary. And I was looking it up. Um, uh, Jurassic Park obviously released in the summer of 1993 when the average ticket price was four dollars and 14 cents. So you can go see Jurassic Park hey. for the cost of what it would have been to see Jurassic Park whenever it came out in the 90s. That is very cool. There's like your fun awesome. trivia for the day. All right. One <laughs> of the other movies you can go see for four dollars is Gran Turismo. And I highly recommend going to see this movie. Um, Sony. I don't know why Sony kept pushing it back. I think they were they were trying to build anticipation for it with some of these fan screenings because they knew they had a good movie on their hands and they were waiting for like positive word of mouth to sort of drive it forward. I not that this is like a high bar to pass, but this to me is is one of the best, if not the best game video game adaptations that I've seen go to movies. And it's based on a true story, which I think lends a lot of credence to it about a racing team that wanted to find uh, a, a player who has been so immersed in Gran Turismo, the game, the game actually exists inside the movie. So it's not like they're taking um, an existing game and trying to, like, build it out into something. These are kids who play Gran Turismo um, and put them into an actual racing car to see if the skills that they are picking up over the course of playing the game can can translate into uh, an actual car. And this movie, I'm telling you, does nothing that you haven't seen before in any sort of, you know, blueprint for a sports movie where there's a surly coach, you know, played by David Harbour who doesn't think that the kid can do it. And and there's obstacles along the way and an arrogant, you know, uh, competitor who doesn't believe that the kid belongs there. And but for some reason, man, it just works like it's just it's fun and and really exciting. The racing scenes are incredible. Neil Blomkamp, uh, who did District 9 and also Chappie, uh, apparently uh, has directed this and did a, a really, really great job of, of blending the the people playing the game and then transitioning it into the car. Um, and I watch a lot of Formula One F1 uh, with PJ. He's a huge fan of it. and. I thought he did a tremendous job of making you feel like you're in the car. Kind of like I 
I feel I'm going to go out of my way and probably see this again in 4DX. I don't really do 4DX. It seems kind of annoying to me <laughs> um, to have like, you know, things blasting at you. And, I saw and Mad Max. Moving. I saw Mad Max that way. Yeah. And I've never done was, the 4DX thing. Is it awesome? Dude, the Mad Max. So Mad Max was like, OK, you're in the theater, you're in the theater and your 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 seats are vibrating and moving with the with the like, imagine the scene when they're when, when they're driving yeah. through like the, the sand and the desert, or whatever. Well, that's the whole movie. They just drive right. one way and then they drive back. And they're pumping let uh, they're pumping tire smell into the theater. And it's like and like if there's like a, a, a water sequence or whatever or a fire sequence, you get the wind of that what? that hits your face. Oh, dude. Wait, literally wait, like, wait, is there one in D.C.? Yeah, there's one in there. Uh, there, well, there. There used to be one. I think there's still one in Gallery Place. There's one out in L.A. But the Mad Max one was one of the best experiences I ever had. I recommend if you do see 4DX to do it after if you've seen the movie already. Sure. Basically, yeah. like see the film normally first, but then like for a film like Gran Turismo or a film that you think might be a fun ride, like Top Gun would have been really cool oh, because cool. you because you would have felt it. But like it's it's it smells, it's water, it's air, it's movement, it's it's vibrations. It's like it's really and it's all timed exactly to the movie. It's literally timed to. It's not just some random like puff of air. Like it hits you with the exact momentum of the driving and of the action. And so like if like Tom Hardy is like going left to right on that big pole, I think I remember you felt, you felt some of the wind and the explosion. That's, kind of, that's pretty cool. And it's so like, they'll, and they'll even put like smoke, not, I don't know if it was like smoke or like whatever it was. It looked like, like a haze of some sort to make it look like you were in that. It was cool. Really cool. That's awesome. Uh, Jakey, back me up that this is a good movie. Oh, no, I was so deeply surprised by this movie. I didn't really know what to expect um, going into it. You just think to yourself, how good could a movie based on a racing video game possibly be? The saving grace being exactly what you talked about, the fact that it is based on a true story. It's got this really interesting kind of Willy Wonka vibe where they hold this these, this contest for these kids. Um, that's sort of what sells it. You know, one of the cool facts being that the real racer is the guy who does the stunts. Um in in the film, which is fantastic. Uh, look, you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a very good version of a movie that you've seen a thousand times before. Like the, the David Harbor character, we have seen in a thousand other movies. But David Harbor is just so good playing really good. that part. Um, yeah. I I love this movie. I remember um, you know kind of going in for the junket and then halfway through, just sort of pausing and having that moment. And I love when this happens, and we've all experienced it, where you just sort of pause halfway through a movie and go, "Is it just me, or is this movie kind of awesome?" Like this is this movie is so much better than I thought it would have any right yeah. to be. Uh, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I get the impression that uh, one of the reasons that Sony probably kept pushing it back is they've got to get past the hurdle of just it's a video game movie mm-hmm. and really emphasize to people the the, the, the true story hook of it. Um, in fact, which is, I think like even like the title, like all the title cards say like Gran Turismo based on a true story or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, isn't, that so, the ti- isn't that the actual movie title? I think Sony tried story? to change it after the fact. Yeah, I think they tried to add based on a true story after the fact. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, like, if you go <laughs> no to like, if you, that. if you go to Fandango, like, I'm going there right now. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually paying to see it tomorrow in Dolby, um, at uh, five o'clock. And yeah, the literal title of the film on Fandango is Gran Turismo, based on a true story. You know what's going to say on your ticket once they tear it? Gra- 
no, it's gonna. <laughs> yeah. you know, actually, I, I went and saw uh, my seventh viewing of Oppenheimer was Oppenheimer in seventy millimeter, and I was so happy because I always print out my ticket, even though I buy it digitally. Um, and it, it had it's it had the full Oppenheimer name in 70 millimeter and i was like yes beautiful i just, beautiful. I, just I want i wanted it so yeah i'm going for so I, I figured this out when i go for round eight that will be officially 24 hours that i've spent watching oppenheimer what, what's could, what's your final number what's what's the number you're gonna stop at i think i'm gonna stop at eight i'm gonna yeah? stop at eight yeah well, i think because i dunkirk 24 was six. hours is 24 yeah, hours I, is, a, I, is enough. I, I like it. Yeah. And, and also I'm, I have the screenplay. So if I ever get uh, withdrawals from not seeing it, I'll just I'll just read, I'll just read the screenplay. Is there not an element of, you know, what's coming, like what scene no. is coming next by this point? No, I do it because and I, and I won't dive too deep into this, but like the reason why Nolan's films hit me the way they do is because they feel like experiences like like, OK, when you listen to a song over and over and over again, mm-hmm. well, you know, you already know the song, but you've listened to it 150 times or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. and or, or you ride a roller coaster, even though you've ridden it, you ride it 30, 40 times. Now, I know this is three hours versus like a three minute song or three minute roller coaster ride. But if you can just imagine how you feel when you hear a song and the mm-hmm. arc of a song and why you continue listening to it, why it makes okay. you feel a certain way, that's how I feel about his movies. Like, and there's no other filmmaker on the planet that makes me feel that way about a film experience. Like mm-hmm. there's like I go into Oppenheimer and it's almost like I'm uh, like and again, it's a it's a dark subject matter, of course. But it's it's the immersion of the time period and the ride that he takes me on. It's also his the music it's like a concert when you see that and you guys, I know you guys saw it in 70 millimeter IMAX, but just seeing it standard 70 millimeter, it's just like, it's an astounding experience. Like, like it's, mm-hmm. I, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. And my, it's, and I do think it's one of the most important films of our time ever. At, at, at this point where you've seen it enough times, we're like, not saying that you don't have to be focused on the screen because that's why you're there. But like, do you allow you, do you, are you more um, apt to maybe like look at audience members, see how they're oh, reacting yeah. to certain things and, and, yeah. and do things that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have done in some of the earlier screenings? Yeah. One of the cool things is, and a lot, a, a lot of the sequences with, with Oppenheimer and the gray board um, when he's in, in his hearings, um, that every time Kitty is behind him, Emily Blunt's character, you're, you're, you know, generally you're focused on what Oppenheimer is saying, but I'll, I'll find myself watching other characters now that I mm. haven't like focused on specifically in the frame. Um, but I also I'm also really fascinated in just like I'll I'll, I'll watch scenes with a very specific uh, agenda. Like I'll, I'll, I want I'm curious about his lens choices when he decides to go in on close ups. Um, like the, the art form of a, a like a build up. There's a scene with Casey Affleck in the film where he's kind of grilling Oppenheimer. Um, about the Chevalier incident. And that scene is just the the orchestration of that scene in terms of how it starts on a wide and then gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter as the tension builds. It's just these little subtle things that aren't noticeable when you watch it the first, second, third time. Um, Yeah, it's it it hits me different every time, every single time. Who is an who's an uncelebrated MVP? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, Oh, uh, 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 Isidore Robbie. Um, uh, he's from 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, why don't I have blanking on his name right oh, now? Oh, I know who you're um, talking about. Yeah, I love that guy. Um, uh, duh. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Uh, oh, wait, I'm going to throw some love to Jason Patrick, who stood oh, out to dude. me uh, on my second viewing. I thought he did a tremendous job. Also, um, I mean, obviously we talked about... Um, Jason wait, Patrick? Jason Jason Clark. Who plays is Jason wait. Clark. Jason Clark. Jason Clark. Jason, but who, who plays David Isidore? Krumholtz? Oh, David, David Krumholtz. Krumholtz. There yeah. it is. Okay. 
he so there's a scene I, I read this the other day this is actually really cool um i read this before i went into my seventh viewing and i hadn't thought about it this way if you look at oppenheimer as a three-act structure the first act is an origin story the second act is the heist movie and the third act is the courtroom drama so the origin story of oppenheimer what builds him to get to where he is the entire second act of the movie is like him getting the team together to pull off this big thing. Right. It's, it's essentially like, a, you know, a, a, and essentially like a heist idea. And that's team that of concept. communists. Well, well, and, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but in, but then also the third act with um, the courtroom stuff, it's like, there's three genres of filmmaking in that one movie. It's really kind of cool. Also J- Josh Hartnett, I think just crushes, mm. crushes. Uh, it's a phenomenal performance. It's just, yeah, it's, I, I can't, I can't tell you how much that film, what it does to me in those three hours. It's a very immersive, visceral, interesting experience that I also think is very human. And it's also something that we should be thinking about a lot more. And we're not. because We're so inundated I, with everything else. I, I want to um, pitch something to you guys that I read that I actually think is really true. Because um, they talked a lot about, they were starting to predict the, the Oscar nominations that Oppenheimer would get. And the three names that keep coming up are Kelly Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., and Emily Blunt. Mm-hmm. And someone pointed out, you know, we, we've gotten to a point where we almost take Matt Damon for granted because he's mm-hmm. always I so good. And they compared it to... last night. Yeah. Well, listen to this. So the, the comparison was made, and I feel like this is 100% accurate, the comparison was made to Tom Hanks later in his career, mm-hmm. where it's just like he kept turning in Captain Phillips and all these incredible performances and not getting nominated because there just comes this expectation of, well, he's right. always good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so like it, and someone someone basically said, like, one of the worst things that like can happen for an actor is that like you're just so good so consistently that people stop celebrating when you're good because they expect it. And that, I, think, I think that's really interesting because they're right. Matt Damon is phenomenal in Oppenheimer. I had an entire argument with two of my friends last night at dinner about this exact discussion because I was talking about because Matt Damon's performance in Oppenheimer is one of his best. I just rewatched Goodwill Hunting. So I kind of wanted to get a bit of like a, a, a juxtaposition between like, you know, that stage of his career and this stage of his career. Oppenheimer on the first viewing is it's it's not going to give you everything you need in, ter- in terms of understanding everything that went into the performances of every actor on screen. Um, so, like, for example, one of my viewings, I really did focus a lot heavier on Damon Damon's performance, it's the subtleties. It's 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 his eyes. It's the way he looks at Oppenheimer. It's like there's like this moment where Oppenheimer says something uh, to him about putting together the project. And all Damon says is he goes, he goes, he goes, what? Like, like the it, it, it's so simple and it's so subtle, but it's so perfect for the character. And so I don't know. Chris Nolan does a good job of allowing actors to have smaller moments that have such a bigger impact that we don't even know. So much is subconscious. So much of that movie is subconscious that you're not even like processing because there's so much going on and so many characters going on. But every time I see it and this is not a joke and this is not a lie, it feels like it's 45 minutes long. It does feel really short. It's so fast. It is it feels like it goes by so quickly. And I, I, I would advise everyone to go out and see it at least one more time. If you get a chance, it's still playing 70 millimeter. It's amazing. Here's my also, if Damon. you've never seen Jurassic park, it's worth yeah. seeing on Sunday. There yeah. you go. Um, Damon doesn't do movie star parts anymore. He does mm. ensemble. He's part yeah. of a, a part of an ensemble most of the time. So yeah. he doesn't stand out, but he's the perfect glue guy. You know, he just holds yeah. everything together. If yeah, you cast right. the wrong person in that part, Oppenheimer, not, not that Oppenheimer is going to go south, but it might not be as effective. But Damon does exactly what he does incredibly well. And it's just it's really great. Two more MVPs. 
Alden Ehrenreich, who mm. I believe is one of the only non one of the only non real people in the film. Um, oh, he's really? A, he, yeah, he's a character. He's a, he, to me, he has the best line in the movie. Right. Which is, you know, like they're, they're more important. They, they were talking about something yeah. more important. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, like because his rapport with Downey Downey Jr. I mean, obviously, Downey is <laughs> phenomenal. Um, but the the uh, oh, who was I going to mention? Oh, Dane DeHaan. That character is amazing. Like the way he, that he performs that that character is it, it's just there's an eat like a there's a there's just a villain esque aspect to the way he performs the way he talks to Oppenheimer mm. that I find really fascinating. It's yeah, it's amazing, man. And, oh my god, Benny Safdie. How are we forgetting yeah. Benny Safdie? Benny Safdie. But I mean, like literally one of the best parts of the whole film. Yeah, it's incredible. All right. Anyway, uh, Gran Turismo. <laughs> <laughs> so I love, we even I love that Ahsoka turns into Rebel Moon. Gran Turismo turns into Oppenheimer. Yeah. How do well, you eventually, we're going to talk about what we really want to talk about. Eventually. Yeah. Um, head to the comments this week and let us know. Uh, I want to know a video game that you guys love that really deserves a live action adaptation. But hasn't Metal Gear it Solid, Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid. We know Jake's answer. Um, you oh, know, sorry. we've seen things like The Last of Us. Uh, so this could be it could you could pitch it as a uh, multiple episode series. television series or it could be a two hour, you know, uncharted type action movie if you want. Um, so tell us in the comments what you think should be next. Um, and while you're down there, if you catch Gran Turismo. Uh, let us know what you think of that as well, too. We'll be back next week. Oh, in the meantime. Yes, Kevin. Can I mention real fast? I went and saw Blue Beetle. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And I really liked it. I I, I, I was I, I again, I think that with the superhero fatigue and everything that where we're at right now, um, I understand that origin stories can follow similar similar, um, you know, circumstances in terms of how a character becomes a superhero. But what I loved about Blue Beetle was the family. It was this it was, it was the story about the family. It was it was his father. It was his mother. His grandmother had one of the best scenes in the whole film, which I won't go into. Uh, but she was awesome. Her name says what, this the, character is sticking around. Like gun says that the, this character could be yeah. part of the rebooted universe, which I, I, I find to be pretty amusing. I really thought that he that uh, was it Sholo uh, did a phenomenal job uh, with the performance because he like he really played the character perfectly. It was like it was like it was just the intrigue, the the emotion, the the uh, responsibility of it. But also, I don't know. And I'm not saying this is one of the best superhero movies ever, but I got to tell you that I saw it on a Thursday night with a packed crowd. People were clapping at the end. Um, it just resonates really well. And I think. The family part of it was really the thing that hit me. It wasn't even like really the action. Some of the action was really cool, though, and some of the effects were really cool. I thought I thought um, I thought that George Lopez was great in the movie. You want to know why the family aspect resonated with you, Kev? Why? Because you love the Fast and Furious. That's true. Which is all about family. 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 Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I, I thought it was fun. So I went and saw that. So that's why sometimes on the the show, if the guys review something that I'm not reviewing or vice versa, it's because we're seeing it at different times. Like I'm seeing you were on vacation at a a period of time where like a lot of stuff was being screened and junketed and stuff like that. So like I'm I'm props to you for catching up. You know what movie Kevin saw on vacation? (laughs) Kev, tell the people what you saw. Oppenheimer. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't see Oppenheimer on vacation. Oppenheimer was his vacation. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. That's true. All right. Follow us on social media at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, uh, at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Real Blend. Until next week.
Pay your artists. Pay your artists, for God's sakes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.